All right, ready for another week. Yay! I know. Okay. Homework. We have a homework due next Friday, and I forgot to bring it, so I'll bring it on Wednesday. <laughs> Sorry. I know you. I know nobody does it till the Thursday before. I can probably give it to you the Wednesday before the Friday it's due, and then you'd still be fine. But I'll try. I'll print it out. Uh, print it out and bring it on Wednesday. Unless I did remember, and I just didn't think I remembered. Sometimes I print it out before and stick it in my stack, but no. But I will have that for you on, on Wednesday. And then we have a quiz coming up next week. There's no quiz this week, no homework this week. Yeah, a nice quiet week, so if you want to work on the extra project, you've got time to work on that. And then the exam. I put the exam in tentatively for the 21st. It's scheduled Thanksgiving week. I certainly do not want to give an exam the day before Thanksgiving. So I know people will, people are traveling and not going to be here. I mean, I, I'll be here. There'll still be class, but I know a lot of people won't be here. I'm not going to give you an exam that day. So I figured the exam the Monday of that week will be a little bit better. And that will be chapters for this class, 13, 14, and 15. And that gives us this week to get, this week to get through. We're almost done with 13 now. And then we'll get through, we'll have a couple weeks to get through 14 and 15, which should be pretty good. So. Also, I know we mentioned in class last time, but just anything starting yesterday for solar observations is now that the clock's back, so it's an hour earlier than it was. So instead of looking at 1.15, you want to go 12.15. If you'd started out observing wrong, I know a couple people had told me they started observing at 12.15, you now want to go 11.15 just to keep everything consistent. So if you'd actually started or observing at the wrong time, then you still want to go an hour earlier because everything will be consistent. The time hasn't changed. The sun hasn't changed. The only thing that changes are where we put, where we define noon to be. So you know, we switch the hours. You know, we can switch the clocks back an hour every night and really confuse people, right? You know, really, really get it confused. Okay. Picture of the day for today. Another star-forming region. Boy, they're just doing. Since we're doing all this star stuff, they're giving all sorts of star pictures. We have here. A star-forming region. This doesn't have a fancy, fancy name to it that you got to try to look for in it. So, oh, they mention they mention a butterfly in an hourglass in the description. So you, maybe you can see a little butterfly flying with one beautiful wing and one kind of deformed wing, maybe. But well, I mean, the one looks like a nice, beautiful wing out there. The other's kind of wouldn't see that butterfly flapping around too too well. But what we're really seeing here is that there is a there is a star forming down towards the middle here. And there's material, there's a dusty disk here. That could be where planets are forming right now. So current, current planet formation. And then that star, as we've talked about before, illuminates some of the material as a emission nebula in close and then further out as a reflection nebula. Now the coloring is a little bit different on this one, so you don't see the bright reds and blues that we've talked about before. But the interesting thing that you see here is you see all these little tiny red dots. A lot of little tiny red dots on there and you see even more of them if you look at it on the screen not projected to this giant size. A lot of those are what we call the brown dwarf stars. Now we talked about those. Those are the failed stars that didn't quite form. So they didn't actually quite get hot enough to form, to fuse hydrogen into helium. So we're seeing a lot of those when we look at a detail of this picture, there's a lot of brown dwarf stars around. So it looks like they're a very common object to form. They're hard to detect. When they're very young, they're at their hottest and they'll be bright in the infrared. We're looking in the infrared here. 
So we actually do see some of them. Here, some of them. If we look in the visible, their brightness drops off drastically. They're not as bright as any of these regular stars. They're much, much fainter when we get into the visible part of the spectrum. So we don't, see, we don't, we won't, won't always see them. In that, in that case, but here we're seeing a lot of brown dwarf stars. That tells us that what we see when we look at a typical star, the sun, that makes the sun a little atypical. The sun's a relatively bright star compared to most of the stars that we see forming in here. And those big bright stars that we see, the nice things that we see when we look at the nighttime sky, and most of the stars that we see and the stars that kind of illuminate these nebulae are the unusual stars. They're the rare things. They're the one in a billion star that just happens to be so bright that it outshines everything else and that it has enough energy to illuminate all of this gas and this dust. Most of the stars are little tiny red stars, actually stars, not brown dwarfs like some of the ones we're talking about here, but just little tiny red stars that'll comfortably live for many billions, hundreds of billions of years. The sun is 10 billion, some of these red dwarf stars will last 100 billion, 200 billion, will last a very, very long time. Those seem to be the most common stars in the galaxy and in the universe. So the nice bright ones that you see are just the bright ones that are shining, but they're only there for a very short time. But it's a very pretty picture though. I like the picture. I thought it was a nice pretty one too. So get to see all of the nebula and all the, all the different structure to this as the stars are forming down in here. You get to see all of the structure that you get to the nebula. So it's very pretty. Very pretty picture. Question? Questions? No? No? Okay. On to black holes. From the, from the birth of the star to the death of a star. So we'll go from one end to the other. Okay. Now we were right about here last time. So we had looked at this last time. And then we talked about the tidal forces near a black hole. Again, this only occurs when you get very close to the surface of the black hole, which was that event horizon. It does not occur when you're much further away. So when you're very far away, when you're far away from the black hole, you don't notice anything different about it. Sun can turn into a black hole right now. Earth will happily orbit it for the next five billion years. Earth will get rather cold and rather dark. It wouldn't be pleasant for us. But it really wouldn't affect the Earth's orbit. The Earth could turn into a black hole right now. That would affect us even a little more immediately. We'd get, get kind of squished down to nothing at the same time. But the moon would still orbit us just fine. So there's, there's no great big cosmic vacuum cleaner that the black hole is going to come through and you know, disrupt everything at the center of our galaxy is a black hole. Probably about a million times the mass of the sun. Very big black hole, not just a couple times. And we'll talk about that more in chapter 14. 14 and 15 as we get to galaxies. But it doesn't disrupt the sun. The sun still orbits around it. it orbits around the galaxy every couple hundred million years. And it, does, it doesn't affect it. There's no, when you're far enough away from a black hole, it makes no difference. When you're real close, that's when things start to happen. And if you get close enough, you start to see the tidal effects. Now this is what the moon is wanting to do to the Earth, right? The moon is pulling more on one side of the Earth than on the other. So it pulls the water away. Well, you can imagine the moon had much stronger gravity. 
it would pull that water more and more and more and eventually it would start pulling the rock and it would disrupt it. And if you got close enough to a black hole or a very strong source of gravity, the object would be torn apart. So you'd tear apart because the gravity is pulling stronger on this side than it is on this side. It's pulling the whole object in, but as it pulls it in, this side gets pulled harder. So it actually rips it apart. So if you were to travel into a black hole like that, your spaceship and you would get stretched and ripped apart before you got into it. On a small black hole, that's when we're talking black holes like from the stars. That occurred maybe from a supernova explosion. The bigger black holes like at the center of a galaxy, it's a little bit different. You can actually cross in, you can actually cross the event horizon without even knowing it. So the gra- you're far enough away, the event horizon can be big enough that you could actually cross into that without, no- without knowing it. Okay, so that's where we finished up last time. So, space travel near black holes. What do we see? As we get closer and closer, we see a, r- a red shift. Now, not a red shift due to motion. Remember the red shifts we talked about before were due to moving. So as I'm moving towards you, I look a little bit bluer. And as I move away from you, I look a little bit redder. Okay, nothing you can measure to your eye. But when a star is moving towards you at hundreds of kilometers per second or away from you at hundreds of kilometers per second, you can measure that. And you can measure that shift. The other thing that happens is time slows down. So as we observe it, as we observe the object trying to cross into the black hole, this is not for the people on the spacecraft. This is for us observing it. We see their time slowing down. We see their time slowing down. Their clock's running slower. So they would go slower and slower as they got to towards the event horizon. So time goes more slowly for them. So if they could get close to the black hole, not inside the event horizon, and then get away, their time would have slowed down and they would come back less aged than you'd expect. So you might have, for, your, for our experience, it might have been 50 years. They could go away as, you know, in their 20s and you could be in your 70s now, you know, two friends, and then come back and they're in their 30s now and you're in your 70s. Depending on how close you actually get to that strong gravitational field of the black hole. So time slowing down is one, is one effect when you get closer and closer to a black hole. Now the observer doesn't see that. They'll see themselves go straight into the black hole. Because they don't, you don't see your time slowing down, so to you, nothing's changing. You're just going straight into the black hole, and once you cross in, you're dead and gone. You know, or you're torn apart as you got into it. You know, most, of the, most of the objects will be torn apart as they get into it. But what we call this is a gravitational redshift. So it's actually shifting. It can shift the light, and I'll show you this and again in the, I think it's the next slide, that the light actually gets shifted to the red just from the nature of trying to escape from this very strong gravitational field. It takes a lot of energy to get away from a strong source of gravity, right? Well, if you get close enough, you can't get away. But if you try to escape from the Earth's gravity, you slow down, right? So if I launch, if I try to throw a ball up, if I throw it hard, it goes up into the air and eventually it will stop. 
The Earth's gravity is slowing it down. As light is trying to escape from a black hole or from, near, from just outside the event horizon of a black hole, gravity is still pulling on it. So gravity wants to slow it down. But light only travels at a certain speed, so you can't slow it down. The only way you can decrease its energy is by changing its wavelength. So the strong source of gravity, instead of slowing down light, which it can't do because light always travels at the speed of light, what it does is it shifts it. And it shifts it towards longer wavelengths or lower energy. So it takes the energy out of the, out of the light in that way. So instead of, re- instead of slowing it down, it shifts its color. I think the next one shows, yeah. So what you might have is as you're close to a black hole. So if you're very close to a black hole here, about three kilometers is considered for a typical few solar mass black hole, the event horizon would be about three kilometers. Ten kilometers was the size of a neutron star. So a neutron star really isn't all that far away from being a black hole. It's close. You just have to condense it that little bit more. The neutrons just hold it up just enough. But it's not all that much. It's not like it has a big collapse where it's got to go from the size of the Earth, 20-some thousand kilometers, down to 10. That's a big jump. It's only got to go from 10 down to 0. Well, it's only got to go down from 10 down to 3 to become a black hole. So if you can compress that neutron star a little bit more. But what you'd observe, so if you were sending a signal away If you were taking a spaceship very close to this black hole and sending the signal away, you could send a visible light signal. And as long as you're outside that event horizon, it gets away. So as this gets away, but it goes from visible, but in in terms of trying to escape, it's losing energy. So it goes from visible to infrared to radio. The wavelength gets stretched out as it tries to escape from this black hole. Once you're inside this black hole, the escape velocity is too great, and even light ends up, getting turned, get, get, ends up getting turned around and kept inside the black hole. Light cannot escape. The other example there is x-rays. You could send out a signal of x-rays from near this black hole, but you might see them far away in the visible. Now we see this. We can see energy escaping from near a black hole. And that's something we can actually detect. As material spirals into the black hole, it'll form a disk around it. We talked about the disk just just earlier today around the very young star. Well, you can get disks around a black hole, too. So a disk of material can be material that's slowly spiraling into the black hole. Remember, it's not the big vacuum. It's not just sucking all the material in. You can get a material orbiting around. Some of it is slowly being consumed by the black hole. But it's not just grabbing it all at once. And what it does is that material gets very, very hot, a lot of friction as those particles rubbing against each other and striking each other. And it can give off things in the visible and the x-ray near the black hole. But because we're detecting them much further away, we, won't, we will see them as more visible and, in, and infrared and radio. So all of those wavelengths will have gotten stretched out. And that's what we call a gravitational redshift. It's redshift, we're the same thing we talked about for motion. But it's due to gravity instead of anything actually moving in or into or away from the black hole. It's nothing moving, in this case, away from us that is shifting it towards longer wavelengths. There's not particles here that are streaming into the black hole that fast. It's just they're trying to escape from this very, very strong gravitational source. Okay.
So what's inside a black hole? Peanut butter, right? We did last time. No one knows. So my answer is as good as anybody else's. But it's not a good scientific one because there's no way to test it. And we can do a class field trip, see if Hack will spring for a field trip to a black hole. Of course, it's a one way, so once you get in there, we may know if it's a big enough black hole, maybe we'll know, but we can't tell anybody. We can't get back out. So, present theory, what we say is that that mass collapses. There's nothing else, to, there's nothing else that we currently know to stop it from collapsing. So once it crushes through the neutrons that were holding up the neutron star, it should collapse down to a single point. Infinite density, all the material is, so it's a radius of zero. It's condensed down to a point. So put your finger, thumb and finger as close as you can together, squeeze them, and it still fits inside there. That's how tiny that star would become. But it still has the mass of the sun, or more. But, again, there's nothing. There, there you can go through some different ideas and things as to what happens, as to whether the singularity really goes to a point, that final point down there. Does it turn into a disk? Does it turn into a ring? There's all sorts of other theories as to what might happen. But the problem is, there's no way to go test them. There's no way to get into a black hole. We can't create a little mini black hole on Earth that we can go experiment with and see what's actually going on with it. We can't go look at a regular black hole and find out what's going on inside the event horizon. Nothing comes out from there, so we don't know. Typically, you know, I joke about them being made of peanut butter. Okay, they're probably not. What are they going to be made of? Hydrogen and helium, right? Because that's everything else, everything else in the universe. But once they've been crushed this small, all of that identity is gone. So no matter what they were made of before, you know, they could have been made of hydrogen, but if you've smashed everything down through neutrons and beyond, you're not going to have any identity. Yes, sir? I'm sorry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd have to look, I don't, I, not that to my knowledge, but they may, they may have. I'm not going to say they haven't, but they, they could have. I'd have, to, I'd have to check into that. Okay. I said there are things such as mini, you can make mini black holes that are much, much smaller. They don't last very long. Um, black holes actually do evaporate over time. It takes a very long time. But they can actually evaporate. They'll get smaller and smaller. Hmm? So I think they're so small they'll last for a couple seconds. Yeah. Yeah. There are things, I mean, there are tiny black holes, and the smaller the black hole, the faster it evaporates. And it evaporates by my marker here. If you have this is the, the black hole, of course, is the point at the center. But if you're at the event horizon, what happens I, at some point is that you have throughout space, matter and energy are interrelated. So you can convert matter to energy and energy to matter consistently. So you can have, as we talked about in the sun, you had a positron and electron that combined and turned into energy. Well, you can do the same thing right around a black hole. You can have a particle and an antiparticle pair produced. So you can produce an electron. So an electron, say just for example, that could be produced right next to the edge of the black hole, and that ends up rating energy away. One of them can be cab they can be created from nothing. But they normally and they happen all the time, they just create and annihilate each other instantly. But if they happen to happen right next to a black hole, 
One can be captured by the black hole if they're right outside the event horizon and one can escape. And it's essentially that energy comes out of the black hole. So it gains the positron, but the energy is the energy from the black hole is lost and it slowly can radiate matter away that way. Talking radiations. If you understand Stephen Stephen Hawking, it's a, yeah. It's it's up there above Einstein, so I mean it's it's tough to do, but just to you know, I'm not testing you on it or anything, but just to give you what's going on, what's <coughs> supposedly going on there. But really what I'm saying for right now until our idea of physics until we can get the physics to understand what goes on in material that is that dense, we don't know what goes on with it. But how do we know they exist? We can't see a black hole. Well, here's a couple examples. You know, we talked about we talked about how you can discover planets, right? The planets tug on the stars. And we see those planets, we see that star wobble a little bit. Well, black hole is going to do that except on a much bigger scale. So if we look here, we have a visible picture of a star. And we have an x-ray picture of the same area. Now, stars don't normally emit x-rays. Remember, stars normally emit visible light. They're big, hot stars. will emit a lot of ultraviolet light. But x-rays requires a lot of energy. You don't get a star that the temperatures, the millions of degrees needed to start giving off x-rays in any significant quantity. And if you look there, they're pretty close. Maybe that's, if these are all lined up, there's this one zoomed in here. So this is right about, the middle of that's right about here. So it's actually, that x-ray source, there's nothing there. So this is how one way we can find them. We can see them tugging on a star. We could watch that star and watch this star moving and it's seeming to orbit nothing. That would be a good sign and if we can determine the mass of it, Kepler's third law, I told you it would come back again. Kepler's third law will tell you you could determine the mass. You could watch this star orbit, determine its semi-major axis, determine its period and you could calculate the mass that is required to be here. Or you can find them this way. Here we're seeing a nice strong x-ray source associated with this star, but slightly off, not, the star's not doing it, but could it be material from this star spiraling into a black hole, coming close to that event horizon and heating up? So that's another way that we can infer the existence of a black hole. And there are a couple of very good ones that we have very strong evidence for these black, we have very strong evidence for these black holes. Cygnus X1 is what we're looking at there, what we're looking at on the previous screen, is one of the strongest black hole candidates. So, we know the mass of the star. Now if we see a star, if we see a star in the sky, we can use the HR diagram, we can use what its luminosity and what its temperature are to figure out where it is on the HR diagram. We can figure out roughly what its mass is. So it's about 25 solar masses. So the star that we see is 25 solar masses. But if we go back to Kepler's third law, then we can figure out the mass of the whole system. So the mass of the two stars together is 35 times the mass of the sun. So one star is 25 times the mass of the sun. The other, the total has to be 35, leaves us with this x-ray source is 10 solar masses. 
10 solar masses is too much to be a neutron star, right? I said about three, maybe four, you know, it's not an exact number, but right around three is what we typically use. So this is 10. That's way over. So even if you allow for little bits of errors here and there, that's still way over the amount. So this is very likely a black hole orbiting the star. Probably was another star there that at one point was even more massive than this one. 10 solar masses is what's left. But this star had to have been more massive than the star originally because it went through its life. It's already dead. It's already a black hole. It didn't just become a black hole for the fun of it. It was the end of its life. So it probably underwent a supernova explosion at some point, blew itself up, and then this is just the material that was left over. You might have sent many solar masses out into the universe. So maybe it was 50 solar masses before. Just guessing. Just giving you a number there. It would have then sent a lot of material out into the universe when it exploded. Some of it would have been collected by this other star, so it might have gotten a little bit more massive than it was originally. And what was left over in the core was still enough that it couldn't stop as a neutron star. It had to collapse completely. You see in pictures of it, you can see actually gas flowing from the star. So you can actually see the star distorted a little bit. And you can actually see that instead of being like this, you'll actually get material flowing towards some unseen object and making a little disk around it. And that's what we call an accretion disk around it. And that's just where it's gathering the material. So looks very similar to the nova and the supernova and all the stuff we've been talking about. Well, we can get the same thing with the black hole, except you don't get an explosion. You're never going to get an explosion around it, right? Black hole is just going to consume the material as it gets close enough. But you could have this disk around it. This disk can be emitting, this disk emits x-rays. So it is the disk that actually emits x-rays. So that's where the material is coming from. It's not coming from the black hole itself. Say so once you get inside the event horizon, you're, you're gone. No material's coming out. But when you're close to it, you can emit those x-rays. You know, maybe being emitted as even higher energy particles close to that black hole, depending on how close you're actually getting to it. The other thing that tells us that this has to be a very small source is its brightness variations. When you look at the brightness variations, so if we looked at brightness against time, and we just plotted how bright is this object, you know, we observe it. And it gets brighter, and it gets fainter, and it gets brighter, and you know, it might do something like that. Sometimes it gets a little brighter, sometimes it gets a little fainter. The size of this object is limited by how rapid those variations are. The faster something changes in brightness, the smaller it has to be. You can't have something gigantic the size of a star or the size of a galaxy, say, vary in you know, tiny fractions of a second. The faster it varies, and you might be looking, this whole thing might be over just you know, a second or two. It's, var it's varying very, very quickly. The faster it varies, the smaller this object has to be. 
And we'll come back and we'll look at this again. We'll talk about this when we get to galaxies. And we'll talk about the same thing when galaxies vary. And it tells us that there are black holes at the center of galaxies. Because there are whole galaxies that can vary in brightness in times easily of weeks or days or hours. Hours is how long it takes light to travel across a good chunk of the solar system. So that means if this object that's producing energy for a galaxy is varying in hours, whatever is producing that energy has to be the size of the solar system. Talking about a big black hole at the center. There's no way anything else could vary that quickly. So when we see short time scale variations, that tells us that the source itself has to be very small. So here's the example again. It's the same picture we just looked at before when you're looking at invisible light and x-rays. And again, you see you know, the way they line it up here, but you've got to kind of look at how the, where this picture is taken. This, this x-ray picture is taken right here. So at the middle of that is right in there. It's just a little bit. It's right next to the star, but it's not that star that's emitting the x-rays. It's something else out here that is emitting the x-rays. There are a couple of others. There are other ones. Cygnus X1 isn't the only good black hole candidate. There are a number of others that we do through similar methods. You have a star. You know its mass. You can determine the orbits. And you can figure out through Kepler's laws what the mass of this entire system has to be and find a limit to how big this is. Once that goes over about three solar masses, it tells us it's likely a black hole. Those are the little black holes. Those are the little babies. Those are only a couple times. Mass of the sun, couple masses of the sun, three, four, ten. You know, they're little. There are other black holes, and again, we'll come back to this more in the next couple of chapters as well. But the centers of galaxies contain what we call supermassive black holes. A million stars. So a million times the mass of the sun. Now the idea we think of how those might have formed is just through black holes at the center of the galaxy. When the galaxy started forming, black holes formed and slowly they coalesced. So black hole collides with a black hole, you get a bigger black hole. You don't get an explosion, you don't get anything else. You know, if two stars, you might get some interesting things happening. Two galaxies collide, interesting things can happen. You can see pretty stuff. Two black holes collide, you get a bigger black hole. That's it. And over time, you could go from things that were ten times the mass of the sun to hundreds, to thousands, to millions of solar masses. And there are actually some galaxies. Ours is more like the million solar mass range, not a real big black hole. There are some that go up to billion solar masses, some of the galaxies. So a billion stars worth of material essentially condensed down to a point near the center of the galaxy and give these galaxies a lot of energy and provide a lot of energy and make these galaxies unusually bright. And again, we'll talk about those in chapter 15 a little bit more and we'll mention our own galaxies the next chapter. Now these are the other interesting, thing, interesting ones that have been found that is not really understood yet. I, mean, I can explain to you, I just explained to you where I think supermassive black holes probably come from. And unless these are something in the middle, I can explain to you where the little black holes come from. We talked about supernovae explosions. But there's some that have been discovered that are not the real big ones, but not the real little ones. So where do these come from? Where does something 100 times to 1,000 times the mass of the sun come from? 
They can't come from a single star because you couldn't have a star that big. Stars go up to maybe 100, maybe 150 times the mass of the sun when they're at their biggest and maybe un- and even then starting to get unstable. So the material that would be left over after one of those explodes would be much less than 100 solar masses, 10, 15, something like that. So where do we get things that are like 1,000 solar masses, these intermediate mass black holes? As I mentioned, could you get some coalescing together? Yeah, but the center of the galaxy, it makes sense because you would have had a very dense area. You would have had lots of stars, lots of stars forming. Some of these, the question is where, where would they come from? How would you get this many black holes combining? You'd need 10 to 100 black holes combining together. So it's a very interesting, it's an interesting one that they're currently researching. But trying to find black holes th- this size is unusual. We thought, you know, you, we can explain the big ones, we can explain the little ones. I can explain these in terms of forming to the big, as, form as the big ones forming, but why did they last so long? Why are they still around? The other one, you'd think they would collect enough black holes if there was enough material there to actually form a bigger black hole. So, black hole questions. No? Blew everybody's mind sufficiently last time, I know. Okay. Well, let me finish up chapter 13 and we'll go on and get chapter 14 started. Let me just go through the summary here. First of all, we said supernovae can leave behind a couple different things. Can leave behind a neutron star, can leave behind a black hole, depending on the actual mass of the star that started the supernova. Neutron stars. Very dense. Mass of the sun, 10 kilometers. Mass of the sun, the size of a city. So very, very dense. They spin extremely quickly. We looked at that as the pulsars, where they could spin a few times a second, up to hundreds of times a second for the millisecond pulsars. We see that as a pulsar because of the lighthouse, lighthouse effect. If I'm the pulsar and I'm spinning in my beam, if it passes across you, you'd see a pulse. But if my, the beam is this way and I'm spinning that way, you're never going to see that pulse. As I'm spinning, that pulse never passes you. You're never going to see that pulse. So we only get to see the pulsars if they happen to be lined up right, if that beam happens to go across the Earth. If it doesn't go across the Earth, we'll never see it. In a close binary system, we can get X-ray bursts. We talked about those in terms of novae. Go back to my diagram for a black hole, but if this is a neutron star, light from, uh, energy matter from the star, from this regular star, cl- condenses down to it, onto this neutron star. And instead of giving off a burst of visible light, much m- stronger gravity gives off a burst of X-rays. And it can actually spin it up. If the material's coming in right, it just gives it that little kick every time that material is added to that neutron star. It gives it that little kick, that little push every single time. And instead of spinning four times a second, it might end up spinning a couple hundred times a second. It can spin a lot faster. Gamma ray bursters, we mentioned those. Possibilities that we discussed were two neutron stars colliding together, giving you a burst of gamma rays, or to what we call the hypernova. Hypernova was a stalled supernova. So it started to form a supernova. Didn't, didn't quite, had too much material there. Couldn't quite push itself back out. 
formed a black hole with an accretion disk around it inside the star essentially and started a lot, restarted the explosion again and ends up being a lot brighter than a typical supernova. If we have more than about three solar masses, and again I said the number is not precise, but about right around three solar masses there's nothing that we know of that will hold up that material. It will certainly collapse enough to collapse inside the event horizon. What goes on after that point, we don't know. And we got to talk about general relativity and how that describes black holes and describes gravity a little bit differently than Newton did. Newton said that gravity was two objects pulling on each other. Earth pulls on the moon, moon pulls on the earth. Einstein said no, that's not what happens. Einstein said that the earth and the moon both distort space and they both move as they should in the, distor in the distorted space that their, their mass distorted. So their mass distorts the space and everything moves around that. So it's a different type of different explanation of gravity. But it works as best we have right now. So it explains things that Newton didn't in terms of the orbit of Mercury because Mercury's orbit cannot be predicted by Newton's. If you use Newton's laws to try to predict where Mercury's going to be, it's never quite there. It's always a little bit off. Einstein's gravity explains it properly. And it also explained the motion of the stars. When you look at the stars during an eclipse, they're in the wrong position because their light had to pass by the stronger gravity of the sun. And so they got, deviated, got bent a little bit. That light got bent a little bit as they passed close to the sun, so they looked like they were in a slightly different spot. We can observe that during a solar eclipse. So actually during a solar eclipse we could see that. Anything entering within the event horizon of the black hole cannot escape. Unless we find that way to travel faster than light. So if the Italians are right and neutrinos can travel faster than light, then they could escape from close to the event horizon. But you've got to remember the escape velocity gets bigger and bigger as you get close to a black hole. So even if you're traveling slightly, fa even if you could travel slightly faster than the speed of light, you're still not getting away. If you get close enough to the black hole, you might get a little bit closer than the event horizon, but you're still not getting all the way into the black hole, into towards the singularity itself, because the gravity is getting stronger drastically as you get close. So that's the event horizon. And this distance, which we call the size of the black hole, is the Schwarzschild radius. And finally, we see the gravitational redshift as we move, if we watch someone moving close to a black hole, or watch material moving close to a black hole, we would see the gravitational redshift. We can observe that with material moving close to a black hole. And we can observe time dilation if you were to go close to a black hole. We would see time for the, for the explorers to slow down. The material approaching a black hole will emit very, very high energy. So as this material is spiraling into the black hole, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And we do get up to the millions of degrees needed to emit x-rays. So it's a very strong x-ray source. And we found a few of these. Cygnus X1 was one example that we looked at. And those are very good black hole candidates. Can you say for sure, it's kind of hard to say for sure you've discovered a black hole. You have very good evidence, but black holes by their nature are very difficult to say that, yes, this is a black hole. Because there are so many things that we don't understand about them still. So, black holes. Questions? No?
No. We understand black holes completely? No. No. <laughs> Do I understand black holes completely? No. <laughs> so. Okay. Let's go on and get to our chapter for the week. See, we're actually doing the chapter for the week we're supposed to do. We're getting a little bit closer. So we're going to talk about, we're, jump, we're jumping now. We've gone through, we've done stars. We spent the last couple of weeks doing stars. We're going to move on to our galaxy. So we're chapter 14. Then we got fifth. And then we got four more chapters. We got five weeks and five chapters. So we're right about, on, right about online right now. The Milky Way galaxy. That's not our Milky Way galaxy. Give you a hint. That's not a picture of our galaxy. We can't see our galaxy like that unless we can get, you know, get hacked to spring for the big field trip up, you know, get at the rocket ship, go travel way outside the Milky Way, come back and look down on it. You'd have to actually get outside of our galaxy to see something like this. So this is another galaxy that may be something similar to ours. This might be what our galaxy would look like. But from us, we're sitting out uh, somewhere out in probably in about that area from the galaxy, about two-thirds of the way out from the center. So we're well out away from the center. But we're looking at it from inside. So it's difficult to tell what our galaxy, there, there are some ways to do it we'll look at, but it's hard to tell. You can't see our galaxy and determine it from inside. Again, it would be like trying to determine what does Blocker Hall look like. You can't leave the classroom. How do you figure out? Well, you've got a couple windows there you can peek through. But if you've never seen it, if you just bring someone in here randomly, blindfold them, bring them in here and tell them to tell you what the building looks like, are they going to be able to tell you whether it's a seven-story building or a two-story? Are we on the top floor? Are we, you, know, you can get some ideas, but if all you can do is look out those windows, that's essentially all we can do in our galaxy. All we can do is look out and say, you know, we can see this little area around us. Most of what we see is this section around us, we can't see the center of our galaxy from where we are. There's too much dust in the way. Even though that would be so much brighter than the rest of this, it's not visible to us. So it's hard to learn, and that's one of the things we'll talk about in this chapter is the structure of our galaxy and how we, how we do know what our galaxy kind of looks like. So our galaxy and then measuring it. That's what we're going to talk about and mentioned here. You know, How do you figure out what the galaxy looks like? What is our structure? How did the galaxy form? And we saw those beautiful spiral arms. Where did they come from? How do we explain a spiral arms in their galaxy? The mass of the Milky Way galaxy. You're still not done with Kepler's third law. Guess what? We use it again. You can determine the mass of our galaxy. Except we find some problems when we determine the mass of our galaxy. There's some issues. And there's a lot of matter that we don't see. We count up all the matter we do see in a galaxy. In fact, I think some of you have know a little bit about this because I know I've read a couple of article reviews about that had to do with dark matter. So, but there's a lot of material in our galaxy that we don't see. And we learn that from this. The galactic center. I said we can't see it. Well, we can't see it in visible light. We can see it in the radio. It's one of the brightest sources in the sky, in the radio sky. But it's not visible optically at all because there's so much dust in the way. All the light, even though there's a lot of light coming from the galactic center, it's all absorbed before it gets to us. But radio waves aren't so effective so we can actually see it in radio. So we'll get started on the very beginning of this. But here's what we see. So when we look 
here, when we look at the galaxy, we're stuck out here about you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way out from the center. About 8,000 parsecs. 8,000 parsecs, about 24, 24 25,000 light years away from the center of our galaxy. But when we look at our galaxy, we can tell some things about it right away. We know that when we look in some directions in the sky, there are a lot more stars than when we look in others. So when we look at where those red arrows are looking either out of the galaxy, either up or down, or up or down depending on your view, we see a lot fewer stars when we look that direction. When we look towards the blue or the white arrows, we see a lot more, more stars. So when we look at the sky, we see something like this. We see most of the stars and most of the light of the Milky Way is concentrated in a rather, rather thin disk. Because that's when you're looking right here or right here, that's this disk. When you look further up, there's still stars there. This isn't completely thin. It's, you know, this is many, many hundreds and thousands of light years thick. So there's always going to be stars up and stars down. There's just not as many. And you can see, when you look at the Milky Way, there's a concentration of light right in this plane. And there are stars above and below, but not near as many. So that's what we see when we look at the night sky as our galaxy. Try not to lose that. Okay. Here's some similar. We said our galaxy is a spiral galaxy. I'm going to come back and tell you how we know that in a little, in a little bit, probably, probably on Wednesday. But these are some other examples of spiral galaxies. And we'll look at these in more detail in the next chapter. But there's a couple parts to a spiral galaxy. There is the bulge at the center. So there's the center of a galaxy and there's a bulge of material around it, which as you see here looks a little whitish, whitish, reddish. It's older stars. And then you see a galactic disk which is the flattened area around it, which is very, very blue and has the younger stars. And then surrounding all of it that you don't see very well is a very diffuse halo, which is almost a big sphere surrounding the entire galaxy. So there's three major parts there, the galactic disk, the bulge, and the halo. And depending on how we look at the galaxy, how the galaxy happens to be orientated towards us, we might see different things. We might see something like this if it has a slight tilt to it where we can see everything very well. You might see some galaxies like this where we're looking almost straight down on them. And you might see some other galaxies like this where we're looking at them almost on the edge. The galaxies are essentially the same. There will of course be minor differences between the two galaxies but if you could travel from our point of view and travel up 90 degrees and look at this galaxy from over here straight down on it, it would look quite a lot like this. Conversely, if you could observe from right here you're look, where you're looking at this galaxy and if we could travel the many, many, many millions of light years you'd need to travel to get down below the galaxy and you could look at it edge on, this galaxy would look a lot like that. So we get to see all the galaxies. We get to determine more about the galaxy by looking at how we see the different ones. We can tell that they're all spiral, they're all thin, and we will come back to the other types of galaxies um, in, next in the next chapter. But those are the primary components. You have a bulge, the center, so the galactic center itself, then you have the bulge around it, 
you have the disk of young stars and you have the halo around it. And you know what, I'm not going to get through that in two minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and stop here. Probably going to take me a little bit longer to get through this one, but that's actually just the, that's the first mapping of our galaxy. That was the first attempt to map our galaxy and where they put the sun and then count star of stars in different directions. But I'll explain that in much more, more detail on Wednesday. I want to be able to spend a little more time on it and not rush through it in about a minute and a half. So, questions, questions? Alrighty, have a good one.